HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and Three, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Ned Baldwin, a fisherman, sculptor, chef, artist, philosopher. <laughs> you, you wear many hats in the kitchen and outside. Um, but it, it's this restaurant that you have in an odd little neighborhood of lower Manhattan that I think encompasses all the things that you've ever done in your life and the humility therewith. <laughs> so let's, let's first start in the Pacific Northwest, the son and grandson of a fisherman, and why the sea has your heart? Hmm. Well, I grew up in Seattle, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's probably happier just born that way. You just like the water. Some people do. Some people don't. I'm happier in it probably than I am when I'm not in it. Uh, but in Seattle, you know, uh, you just can't go anywhere without seeing or being near or having to contend with it because uh, there are lakes and canals and uh you know Puget Sound it's it's everywhere um and you know if you leave the city the likelihood you're going to get on a ferry to go somewhere is pretty high um my dad uh had a sailboat so you know I was uh, apparently strapped to a 
something in a bassinet when I was, you know, weeks old going to Canada. Uh, maybe those things set in early. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've been to Seattle and the thriving areas of like Ballard and, you know, which were all old Norwegian fishermen areas of, of, of the city. And some restaurants have reclaimed buildings, uh, reclaimed, reclaimed mm-hmm. some kind of zeitgeist of that era and made it into seafood forward restaurants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the ingredients out there are bonkers. Really, really great. Not limited to the seafood. I mean, the vegetables are amazing. The growing season is longer than here. Um, doesn't get as cold in the winter. Uh, although I, one of my close friends has a farm, and they definitely contend with water out there. He's he's dealing with floods all the time in his fields. Aside from the flooding, it seems mm-hmm. so idyllic. Why would you ever relocate to the Northeast? Oh, well, uh, art school. Uh, I... I um, I ended up going to Yale for grad school and so spent two years in New Haven uh, studying sculpture. And uh, I didn't know this while I was in school. Uh, They try to tell me that, uh, you know, getting an MFA is like going to trade school. Like it's about making connections and starting your career as an artist. I'm very idealistic and too old to be that way. But uh, I thought it was just about getting, you know, learning about who I was an artist or whatever. But in any case, by the time it ended, I, I had relationship, or at least I knew a whole mountain of art people uh, in the Northeast, and it seemed ridiculous not to stay here. So I moved into the city and got a studio in the Bronx. And We have to give a little shout-out to Bennington, though, because I know you went there initially <laughs> for art and philosophy, and yeah. my wife and many people we know went there as well. But what it does is inform the person you are and the way you kind of move around the world. And I'm assuming Yale did the same thing that you want to make the art you want to make, or you want to be the person you want to be without compromise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true actually. And Bennington, there's a g- great little uh, Bennington story. I, I actually went to a school called Whitman for two years in, in uh, Walla Walla, Washington, uh, where they're producing spectacular wine now. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, I kind of found the school a little, provincial and I think I wanted to get out of Washington State so I took a year off and transferred uh, to Bennington but in the, in the proje- process of transferring I, before I chose Bennington I set up these, re- I knew I was going to study philosophy and I, I was had been super interested in ceramics from high school and ended up spending the year off doing that and so then wanted to keep doing it but I had these, you know, I was 19 or 20 years old with very idealistic ideas about uh, you know, that it, you can't make ceramics on a semester system. It's not the right way to learn it. This time and the, like the academic environment was wrong. And so I needed to find a school that would let me practice, but wouldn't force it into their school system. And so I went to Sarah Lawrence and I went to Hampshire and I went to Alfred, visited all these schools and asked them like, can I, can I study philosophy and just work in your ceramic studio? And all of them said no. And then I went to Bennington and Barry Bartlett, who remains a friend and who I love. And I think, I, I'm not going to say he's a great artist, but I love his work. Uh, was like, sure, <laughs> you know, come on in. And, you know, I, I wasn't bad at it by then. I can handle the clay pretty well. And, I, you know, he saw me working. And I think he was like, I don't, you know, whatever. And then, of course, I immediately just started taking classes when I got there. Was it with intent of it being art or it being functional, the sculpture or the, the ceramics? Yeah, I was making pots. I was making pots. I like learning how to do stuff. 
like, uh, and so, you know, learning how to, whether it was, I mean, this is ridiculous, but I was like an obsessive windsurfer when I was in, in middle school and high school. And, you know, it's about mastery, like not that I ever end up mastering anything, but you know, the, the, the idea of it or the challenge of it. So, you know, making pots is about, you know, it, whether if, I mean, windsurfing is such a random example, but, uh, <laughs> I but think it, it is the first time windsurfing has been mentioned on the food scene. Okay. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, like making a perfect, you know, getting a, like having a perfect run, you know, with the wind blowing right and you're, everything's all lined up and everything's great, like tying that down and you just do it over and over and over and over again. Same story in ceramics. You make the bowl over and over and over and over again. And, you know, I could list 14 other things in between that and making an omelet at prune on Saturday and Sunday morning over and over and over and over again. You know, it's just repetition until you, until you get it. This studio that you got in the Bronx and came to New York to be an artist, why did you end up making furniture instead? Because, uh, so I quit making clay stuff partly because I, I, I didn't know at the time, but I got... I have an autoimmune thing that's uh, arthritis, and my back was really bugging me. Clay's just heavy. Clay's really heavy. And at a certain point, I stopped making practical things and started making impractical things out of clay. Uh, And, you know, um, there's all this sort of heroic clay stuff. I'm not really, I don't care one way or another about that, but, you know, uh, it gets heavy when it's even not very big. So I wanted to have a freedom to make whatever scale of thing I wanted. So I quit making clay stuff and I started making it out of other things. And then I realized that I needed, probably not everybody would think this way, but I've found myself frustrated by my um, lack of facility with other materials, like whether that, and that ended up kind of leading me into carpentry. And so uh, I somehow got back, I was spent a year in Omaha. That was where that transition happened. Um, at a artist residency program called the Bemis. It's a cool place and weird and <laughs> very, very far from water, which ultimately was why I think I had to go. Um, so I went back to Seattle and I threw an old family friend, met this guy, fascinating guy who went to MIT, studied electrical engineering, got out of school and was like, I really need to know how to build a house. That was, that was as soon as he got out of undergrad, that's what he wanted to do met some family in New Hampshire that built houses from dig the hole, pour the concrete all the way through to make the windows, lay the roof, do the wiring, the plant. They did everything. And he learned everything, the whole damn thing. Like he was a full 360 degree builder. Uh, and then he's at some he was 50 when I met him. So he, you know, he's, then he's living in Seattle. He's actually living in, um, this awesome little town called La Connor on the water. And living in whatever whatever house he was working on. Uh, so he and I started a little business. We bought houses and, and renovated them. And I, I did that in part because I knew I could learn how to make anything working with him. So we spent like three years doing that. This seems like a very similar, a parallel story to building a houseman. Not, not to lift that term from you. Mm-hmm. But it was at the age of 35 that you decided you wanted to cook. Yeah. And... I mean, there's no way to do that in New York without starting from the bottom up. That's that's very true. (laughs) That's very true. But uh, where did that change from flipping houses to flipping omelets? Uh, Well, there was art school in between. Um, It seems like I go in and out of practical and impractical. Like I get to a point where I'm like, Jesus, this is way too rational. 
you know, like the house project started to be, I had started having to make decisions that I hated. I, I made a, I made a, um, I won't go into it, but I, I started making bad decisions in the house business because I was the art part was coming on. So, <laughs> you always got to so, ward away the art part, well, or bring it in yeah. because you know I quit doing the houses and, and went to art school. So you know, then yeah, I guess I was living in New York, and uh, I'm not that good at the hustle. Uh, and and art in New York, there's a lot of hustle. You can make the work, but, you know, it's, I guess it's everything in New York boils down to real estate. And, you know, so if you make like five sculptures, where the hell are you going to put them if you don't sell them or get them in a show or whatever? They start to pile up in the studio. And so, I, you know, I am absolutely not going to say anything about whether or not my work was any good. I don't, I, I don't know and I don't care, but the, um, uh, I wasn't good at selling it. I wasn't good at getting it out there. And so, uh, you know, gradually... And, and combine that with, I just love to work. Like I, nothing, I find it very calming when there's sort of a, a like an insurmountable mountain of work in front of me, unclimbable mountain. Uh, so, uh, cooking is that, you know? Um, and I, I learned that because a friend of mine, while I was still making art, I became friends with a guy who was a chef at, he was a cook at, at, uh, Ducasse at the Essex house, Ducasse's first restaurant in New York. And he somehow, Christian Delivery was the chef at the time, and uh, he somehow got me invited to come in there for a week and stand around and watch and peel salsa feet and whatever. My mind was blown. And it was, it was like, you know, it was like getting a taste of any of these things. Like, oh, my God, I want to learn this thing. I wonder if I can do this thing. And so, you know, I, I did that. He, he actually set me up with another trail a year later at, uh, at John George. And then I set myself up with a trail a year later at Prune. And so it was like a gradual extraction. And all the while, I'm reading everything, everything I, everything I get my hands on about food and cooking at home every day, you know. And dinner, you know, I'm, I'll be in the studio. And uh, if I had had a boss in the studio, I would have gotten fired in a minute. You know, so <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you know, trying to make stuff. And in the meantime, I'm like thinking like squab and you know, salad, this, and how am I going to terrine that, and consomme, all the classic stupid stuff, you know, trying to, that wanting to learn how to do it, and, you know, uh, going home and making it for friends. So, eventually, uh, Andy Nusser, actually, I was, I, my, I have two kids, they're 13, year, 13 and 11 now, and the 11-year-old had been born a month before, and kind of a blaze of glory it was terrifying at the time not because of every birth was terrifying but because hers was in particular and uh she was still in the hospital and my wife was not well and i was taking my son to school and the school was right down the street from Casamono. and i saw that andy was in there cooking lunch and from where i sit now i realized probably he had to cook sick or quit or had to fire him <laughs> he wouldn't normally have been cooking lunch but there he was and there was no one in there so i dropped my dropped my son off for school uh nursery school and went back and sat at the bar and he had just been in spain and he had all this stuff and you know we chatted and i didn't really let on that i knew anything about who he was or whatever till you know one or two glasses of kava in <laughs> and i mean i think i ate the whole menu it was awesome and um and then i guess i told him about this trailing that i just mentioned here and uh, he was like, oh, you should come work here. And so, uh, and so I did. And the second day, I remember very specifically, I was cleaning fiddlehead ferns 
and he came in and was like, there's this, this is, you want, are you interested in charcuterie? Do you want to go learn this? And, you know, there's this place and he knew I had kids and I couldn't really take on a crazy nighttime cook schedule quite yet. Need to be, need to be broken into that a little bit. And so, uh, Liz Benno was at Italian wine merchants just down the street and he's like, go over there right now. And like, I'm like, well, I'm not done with the the ferns <laughs> get out of my kitchen you're doing a terrible job go play with some meat yeah exactly so i went over there and uh that was it i got you know she offered me a job i probably started two weeks later and you know had to break down the studio and you know months in and so that i guess that was the beginning that was the beginning of the end so we're gonna take a quick break on that you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org we'll be right back you're visiting the in-laws this weekend they've asked you to bring wine you need a bottle that says, I'm laid back enough that I didn't think about this choice for hours. But also, I've graduated from Two Buck Chuck, proving I can provide for your daughter and our future children. Where to go from here? Just ask Vivino. Vivino knows feeling pressured in the wine aisle can sour the whole experience. But with the largest wine inventory, Vivino gives you the best price on personalized picks based on your taste profile then ships them right to your door. Scan wines, compare reviews, save your favorites, and even get unlimited free shipping with Vivino Premium, plus a free 30-day trial. So, when that next visit rolls around, you know exactly what that dry Alsatian Riesling says about your commitment to your mother-in-law's Sunday roast. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Vivino. Wine made easy. I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Ned Baldwin of Houseman. And I wanted to find this word, and I'm going to mispronounce it, and I think you know what word I'm talking about. Is it Houseman's Coast? Yes. Yeah. What does it mean to you? What does it mean literally? Well, literally, uh, well, I guess literally. I, the Literally, I guess it translates, I don't speak any Scandinavian languages, uh, but uh, you look Scandinavian. I'm 25 yeah. percent Swedish. The beards. Yeah, maybe that's what yeah. it is. Uh, it, it means house man's food. That's the, I mean, literal translation of the of the words. But, but in Norway, and I, I also think I learned the word Norway, but in I think it means the same thing in, in Denmark and in Sweden. Uh, it means like traditional food of the place. So uh, you know, I, I learned it traveling around with a with a Norwegian friend. Um, and he, you know, we'd be eating, his dad was a chef, so we like ate like crazy when we were there. Uh, he was, he's as into food as I am. Um, and you know, so we'd be eating, uh, I don't even know what, we'd be eating boiled cod and he'd say, oh, this is, this is really Hoosman's Coast. Like this is real Norwegian food. Um, and you know, that was, that was 2000. Three two thousand two, so it's the, the the word just sat with me for a long time. Uh, yeah, that's a, 
I'll let you. Yeah. And then 10 years later, you transform that term into what is now Houseman at 508 Greenwich Street in this interesting little area below Spring Street called Hudson Square in Lower Mm -hmm. Manhattan. And I've been there and I've had most of the menu and so have many critics. And (laughs) New York Times Pete Wells thought the roast chicken was a revelation and New York Mag has said that you have the best steak frites, one of the best egg sandwiches, uh, Time Out in New York, one of the best grilled cheeses, the the French onion Mm -hmm. soup sandwich. None of that is in practical food. That is very practical food. It is very straightforward. But what do you do to make something appear on a best of list? It's something that people already know and expect. What, what do you do that's impractical or outside of what they'd expect to make it exemplary? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I, maybe the steak's the best place to answer that question. Uh, and I, I like the practical stuff because you can do it. You do it over. We said this already. We do it over and over again. The reason that's fun to do it over and over again is you learn. If you're paying attention, if you continue to pay attention on the hundredth time or the five hundredth time, you learn something you didn't know on the fiftieth time. So, uh, you know, uh, common wisdom with steak cooking is. You get a pan hot or you get the grill hot and you salt the meat and you put it in and you sear the steak. And there's this, you know, this sort of fantasy notion of, of searing the juices in. I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, so we're, we're cooking the steak. And, and I, I, I started to notice when I ate pieces of it that I didn't like the crunchy part that much. And I also noticed that the harder you sear the steak, we, we do it with a hanger steak, the harder you sear the steak, the the further into the radius of the steak, the hard cook goes. So, you know, the perfect steak you want, whether it's a medium well steak or a rare steak, you want it. The ideal is that it looks the same from the middle all the way to the edge. So when you put that hard sear on it, two things don't want the, I realized I don't want the crunch and I was working against the goal of a perfect coast to coast cook. So we, and you know, I didn't know that on, on the 50th one, but I've, I'm really started to pick it up on, I don't know how many we've cooked now, so many. Um, so we now sear that steak to gray with blushes of mahogany, just barely. It's super fun teaching cooks how to do it. They can't, they just can't. Like you tell them to do it and they don't. For like the first week on a station, the fuck it up one after the other and I'm yelling at them there's smoke coming out I'm not yelling but I'm (laughs) uh, uh, you know there's smoke coming out of the pan and you know it's like not good but they can't it's just like they've been taught their whole life so you know so so that so then so then the the hanger steak is because it eats the hanger it eats so well raw it's so delicious the mouth feels incredible the flavor's incredible so you know you don't want to do anything to get in the way of that Um, so I mean it's a long-winded long-winded answer but I think it's paying attention yeah, That's really and, what it is. And I'm not going to you know, not repeat this quote that you have for yourself, a perfect coast-to-coast cook. And that was about the gradation of the steak. But that, that brings me back to your Pacific Northwest and now Northeast. Mm-hmm. And that steak frites, egg sandwiches, grilled cheeses, roast chickens. Yes, this is everyday food, but is it everyday local food to hear? What is, mm. what, what is on your menu and why? Oh, well, I mean, it, you know... Um, it's 2018. We start with the ingredients. So, you know, uh, uh, 
and we love to cook. So the restaurant's a couple of things. The restaurant is, uh, because it's in this neighborhood, uh, and because I like to stay in business, I don't seem to have, be super motivated to do much more than just stay in business, but uh, we got to keep the doors open to keep cooking. And so we have to have people coming in and eating every day, and uh, we have to be a neighborhood restaurant, in short. So we have to be a bit of a bistro, I think, to succeed in this neighborhood. And an American bistro, which is another way of saying uh, a, a, a man's ghost, you know, uh, has to, I, my, in my mind, has to do a few things. It has to have a burger, it has to have a roast chicken, has to have a good salad, and um, as it turns out, sort of has to have a good steak. They buy the steak like crazy. So I give them that stuff. And then that frees me up to do whatever I want, basically, with the rest of the menu. So it's a bit of a, you know, it's a give and take. Um, so the rest of the menu, I do whatever I want. I, you know, I, I love cooking bluefish. I like to eat local conch. Um, we get whole animals in. I like to do whatever the hell I want with those, you know, to cook the kidneys and the liver. And I mean, that's the most fun thing. Like you get the animal and it's not nothing, nothing new in New York at this point. Everybody's buying, you know, or all the groovy restaurants are buying animals and doing, you know, the stuff with them. But I absolutely love that you get two orders of kidneys out of, you know, one animal and you have to, and you can sell this special thing, you know, when you haven't. Fish too. Yeah. You know, you are the son and grandson of a fisherman, but you are your own kind of fish advocate um, by using local fish, maybe some of the unsexier, unknown fish, and putting them on your menu. I, I've seen bluefish be very polarizing, mm-hmm. yet it is so authentically of this area, yeah. of Long Island, and I think it's delicious. You know, it, it's one of these, you got to get it fresh, otherwise people have a bad, you know, it's not the best when it's not coming right out of the water. It deteriorates quickly. Yeah, it's so oily, but at the same time, that kind of flesh is so good when it's braised and in papillo and yeah, or just cooked the way you cook striped bass. Yeah, I mean it doesn't matter when you get as long as it's right out of the water, it's it's fine. And there and then there are a lot of things you can do, you know, like we in the restaurant more than anything we do a pickle on it. I just noticed that the. We, I was doing Spanish mackerel at another restaurant pickling and couldn't get it and thought, oh, maybe bluefish. And it pickles great, really, really nice. So we do that more than anything. And, and you know, as far as the, you know, like if it's not one minute out of the sea or it's not, it doesn't have to be one minute out of the sea. So, I could talk about bluefish for a really long time. We, so we, we should, got some time. Okay. <laughs> that, that and local cod, too, because... Uh, one of your dishes, I don't know if it's on the menu at the moment, is a poached local cod. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it it's is. a very interesting thing. You know, I, I cooked in New England for years to see cod be poached. Uh-huh. Well, that's straight Norway. And that's my friend, that's Frank, who, who you know, I w- we were in northern Norway. And he said, let's go get some cod. And we got in a rowboat and dropped this line to the bottom that was like, you know, 800-pound test mono and with these hook rusty hooks with a crappy piece of rubber on the end and you literally drop them to the bottom boom, 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 and they're like five hooks on each line and you pull up and it's full cod i mean just like practically reaching in the water and taking them out of the water with your hand and then we row back clean the fish and and then he gets a pot and walks down the sea and fills it with seawater and plunks the pot on the stove and boils the cod 
his he his I love his I can't not say it the way he he always says boils. You imagine boil means, and he kept saying it, and I kept imagining the water boiling. Of course, he's a good cook. It's not boiling. It's, it's you know, it's not even simmering. There's, it's just warm water that the cod's cooking in and warm seawater. So great. So, I mean, that, that experience indelibly printed on my mind. I can't ever forget that. Uh, and I love it. And there's something so... I love the... Um, putting all the stuff in the same place you know so the the cod's cooking in the water that it's swimming in and frankie didn't do this he he served it with uh uh potatoes boiled potatoes that had that he boiled in seawater that had a little bit of poaching liquid in them and butter and parsley just that i mean like revelatory so perfect and delicious and right of you know you're right in the place that's the thing i love that i love when food does that like just plunks you right exactly where you are so what is your fishing place i know the north fork isn't too far yeah yeah uh i mean i was on the water yesterday uh so the place changes a little bit depending on the season right now it's it was a very long cold it was a very cold spring so the fish are still in the shallow water so i was kind of in in the in the bays i guess in between the north fork and the south fork um it has just gotten warm and i i don't know nothing from nothing about this stuff. I just, but my mind does stuff while I'm fishing, you know? So it seems like maybe the cold spring, you know, normally like the porgies come and I love porgies, love Mm -hmm. catching them, love cooking them. Uh, And then the weak fish come and then, you know, the black sea bass around, but they're, you can't catch them because they're not in season. The bluefish come the striped bass. I didn't know this till this year that the bluefish usually come after the striped bass. But in any case, it seems as if they this year have all arrived en masse at the same time. And you can go anywhere you want out there, and the fish are just leaping out of the sea. It's crazy. It's I mean, like it's, New Yorkers when it gets warm out after a long winter. Yeah, right. They all just come out of the woodworks, <laughs> and they just all co-mingle, and they're fine with each other yeah, for like for a, a minute. month. Yeah. <laughs> and then summer hits, and it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. But so what of those fish uh, do you not see in restaurants enough? Should people be eating yeah, that's and a great how question. should they be eating it? Yeah. Uh, well, that's an opportunity for a plug uh, for a book called The Fisherman's Wife that I didn't write. Uh, it's by Stephanie Villani, who owns Blue Moon Fish. And so she's a commercial. She and her husband are commercial fishermen that fish in, in the sound, on the sound side, uh, uh, out of Mattituck. And uh, the book is all about using all the fish i think she gets tired of answering questions about how to cook striped bass um which is the fish everybody thinks they should be cooking or black sea bass um so it's just full of recipes for that all different kinds of fish but for me uh i'll take every opportunity to to cook all kinds of stuff so i mean i just learned last year that you that dogfish is delicious some people call it sand shark um poached uh preserved i mean i haven't plumbed all the ways yet i'm looking forward to continuing to goof around with it uh, sea robin uh, is very delicious, and ha- there's a fun fact about sea robin. It's in French. It's called rascasse, and every classic text there is about bouillabaisse makes it very clear that if you don't have rascasse in there, it's not bouillabaisse. Um, and this is a fish that's. I mean, I couldn't get them off the hook this weekend. They're everywhere, and ev- everyone who can. I mean, I, you can hear the other boats. Goddamn sea robins! <laughs> got birds on my hook. You know, complaining about it, and same with dogfish. You know, these are delicious, plentiful fish that people are angry about catching and throwing back in the water. It's very funny. Let's let's plug another book. Right now, it exists on Instagram at, at Ned and Pete Cook Dinner. 
And that Pete is Peter Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. And there was this felicitous meeting, or maybe not even a meeting. You knew he was coming into your restaurant. Mm-hmm. You served him a big fish. He is a fisherman, as are you. And you guys are writing a book about... Not about fishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the best of our ability. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're writing a book about... Um, writing a book about... Well, we're writing a cookbook. So it's, uh, it's about how to cook stuff. Um, and you know, uses the, I mean, we've been talking about learning how to, learning how to do stuff, whether it's learning how to do, make carpentry, make, you know, build houses or, uh, make pots or cook omelets. Uh, what we found through a lot of talking, cause we, you know, when he came in the restaurant, we just quickly, we hit it off, found you. And if you're going to make a cookbook with somebody, you're going to spend, a, I, I mean, an insane amount of time together. So, uh, it's important that you enjoy each other's company and get along and your minds kind of work at a similar frequency. And we found that ours do, um, which is a, I mean, an incredible gift for me. Cause I have always, you know, it's like, uh, one of the cool things about having a restaurant and, and not going out of business too quickly is in New York. Anyway, I'm finding I get to meet a lot of, a lot of heroes. It's really, really cool. Um, so anyway, uh, we just through a lot of talking, we discovered that uh, this process I have of like figure out how to make this thing. So figure out how to make that roast chicken or figure out how to make that steak. There's a process that has some ins and outs, not complicated, but some particulars. Uh, and then you and then you and then you kind of get the process um, and then you do a bunch of things with it. So, you know, I don't we always have roast chicken on the menu at Houseman. We serve it maybe eight or 12 different ways over the course of a year. Um, so the book is founded on, actually with the chicken as a prototype, it's founded on that concept. Here's how you make a delicious roast chicken at home simply, and then here are five ways to serve it. So we do that 25 times in the book with 25 different, different so we're right now, it's not a very sexy way of saying it, we're calling the base ingredients um, or base processes. And then, you know, five recipes around each one of those. That seems like what you've done with your whole life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And on that, if people don't want to do their own chicken at home, they can come into Houseman and see you because it will always be there. It will always be there. But, Ned, thank you so much. Thank you for making Houseman. And I hope to revisit and have some bluefish soon. Yeah, great. (laughs) Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3 Music by Cookies and David Tadashore Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.